How long have you lived in New York City? In total? Yes. Uh, I would say add it all up about 41 years, 42 years. In, and, and you lived in New York in the dark times, too. They weren't really dark times, but before it was um, totally gentrified New York like it is now. Well, I grew up in Queens until I was 13. That was uh, 1969. Uh, then the suburbs into, you know, up in, until uh, college years. Uh, I moved back into the city full time in 79. So, right. yeah, this was the, the end of the 70s. New York was still sort of in its bleak Struggling. period. So in that time, how many crimes have you seen committed? Actually witnessed, I would say one definitely. Okay. Uh, would a suicide be a crime in your mind? Um, I, I, I scarily, I, I went, a body fell from a height. I was on the sidewalk. Oh my it, God. It, Are you serious? It, yeah. That, so I mean, it was, it, whatever, that was pretty horrifying. It not, didn't land too far. I was with my family and yes, someone had jumped. How old were you? Oh, I was an adult. This was, uh, this was in the nineties, I think. How, how high had they jumped from? Oh, seven to ten stories, maybe. And they were they were dead. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was a sound you couldn't believe. Oh God, that's awful. Yeah. So I'm sorry. It, I never. You never told me that. No, before. no. Well, it's, it's something I, I try never to think about all that much. But I mean, it, technically, that's like the worst thing I ever witnessed. And I did. I remember witnessing a horrifying car accident when you know when, when the ambulance came and the people really banged up. But one a real crime, which uh, actually provided a very interesting uh, story for me when I was doing jury duty. What crime was it? What kind of crime was it? You don't have to tell specifics about it, but what type of crime was it? Um, I, when I was working at my friend's coffee store, and it was a warm day, so the door was open, we heard someone say, this guy, like a mugging occurred across the street, like mm -hmm. a purse snatching. Mm -hmm. So I, this was First Avenue up in like 82nd Street. The guy starts running diagonally across from me. I take, uh, I start chasing him. Oh, wow. He runs okay. down, uh, I guess it must've been like 81st Street going towards uh, like York Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I'm in hot pursuit. Okay. And I'm catching up. Right. Uh, I, was a, I was a good job. I'm, I'm catching up and- <laughs> Meanwhile, halfway down the block, he stops short. I stop short. He whirls around and puts his like fists together, like in a shooting motion, an aiming motion. Okay, but no gun. Well, I don't. That's yeah. the key. So yeah, right. I can't. He's sort of half a block down. I can't tell. So I'm frozen there. He's staring at me. So I stop running, and he runs away. <laughs> and I go back to the corner. And there's a crowd of people there. And some guys are like, what the hell happened? You were gaining on him. You know, <laughs> what, 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 you had him. And I yeah. said, well, he stopped and he went into that shooting motion. 
And they're like, ah, oh, he didn't have a gun. What are you talking about? You, you think he had a gun? I said, well, I couldn't really tell, you know? Right. Better so safe kicker, than sorry. Yeah. So the kicker was several years later, I'm on jury duty in a, in a criminal case. And I tell that story only because there was a question about a witness in our case about what he possibly could have seen and didn't see. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I brought that up only to indicate if I went on the stand and testified, could I have said, if asked if I saw a gun, what was I supposed to say? I, right. I couldn't testify I actually saw a gun. I, I might have seen a gun, but I wasn't sure. So, you know, I just thought about like memory and how witnesses, you know, what you see. It was just, but, you know, it was an it, 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 though the guys on the corner, were like, ah, they didn't have a gun. Yeah. What's wrong with you, man? You right. suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you didn't take a chance personally. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, this, you know, I'm, I'm asking this question because uh, there a, a story from the early life of our, our guest host, uh, guest star on The Muppet yeah. Show, season one, episode two of The Muppet Show. There is a story about a crime that is uh, witnessed and the person is sent away for a while to protect them or to, while they, you know, they were, they were, um, they were shaken by this. And so they're sent to live in Missouri. But anyway, um, so we can explore that a little more. Uh, when we come back. Honey, at last, uh, <laughs> we're alone. You know something? I think it's terrific being with you. Mm. Oh, yeah? Why do stars fall down from the skies every time you walk by? Okay, so our host this week, Connie Stevens, born Conchetta Rosalie Ann Ignolia. Before I give her your her birthday, there's another birthday that we have to talk about today. Doug Lippman, born March 20th, 19. Um, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we sent you some... Uh, we sent you some gear. You're you're using a new microphone. I'm using a birthday present right yes. now. Yes. And two books, both of which are tangentially related. Well, one is not tangentially. One is directly related to this podcast. It's a biography of Jim Henson. The other I sent you because it's the it's the book uh, Rick Perlstein who has written four books that are sort of like a um uh a history of modern conservatism in America from Barry Goldwater to Ronald Reagan, this, this transformative period in American conservatism. He wrote four books. And the, the last one came out most recently called Reaganland, which, which documents this exact period in which The Muppet Show was taking place, 76 to 80. Um, so the Carter administration, basically. 
So you got two books from us and, and a piece of technology. So yeah, by the way, I'm just that. a little confused. I have the microphone plugged in. Should uh, I plug in one of the books also? In the <laughs> no, 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 okay. no. The books are old, old style books. You can't just plug technically, them in. I just want to make just sure. Just to your, just to your eyeballs when you read them. Uh, well, I hope you had a good birthday and, uh, and that this is a, 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 the chance to discuss the, um, the storied career of Connie Stevens is a good way to cap it. Uh, as I mentioned, Connie Stevens is the host of season one, episode two of The Muppet Show, a born Conchetta Rosalie Ann Ingolia, August 8th, 1938 in Brooklyn, New York. Her parents were both musicians, Peter Ingolia. The, I don't know. I don't think they were particularly well known. At least they don't have Wikipedia no, I entries. Never, those yeah. names mean nothing to me. He went by the name Teddy Stevens hence Connie Stevens, and Eleanor McGinley. They were both performers of some type. Her half-brother was an actor um, who had some interesting roles. His name was John. Right. This is a fascinating bit when you tell John everyone. John Megna. Um, I mean, if you know more about him, feel free well, no, to. It just struck me. It was fascinating that Connie Stevens' half-brother was the little boy who played Dill. Right. In To Kill a Mockingbird. In To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, the, right. the, that amazing little kid actor. That was her half-brother. Yeah. Uh, Dill Harris is uh, the character in To Kill a Mockingbird who's loosely based on Harper Lee's childhood friend, Truman Capote. Uh, he also appeared, uh, Magna did, that is, in uh, The Godfather Part Two, where he played a young Hyman Roth. And he seemed to be in a couple of those 1970s road movies, like Cannonball Run, that, that kind of movie um anyway stevens uh at 12 witnessed a murder at a bus stop in brooklyn and was sent to live with her fam with some distant family in missouri uh, coming from a musical background she unsurprisingly pursued a career in singing and acting eventually moved to la doug this is where you take it away um if you remember at the end of each episode we both come up with a five word at Stanford University famously to uh, on their um, application asks you to write a five word essay about yourself. So we do a five word essay about the host this the following week. Mine last week for Connie Stevens was Princess Leia. She's my stepdaughter. Yours was my crooner is Eddie Fisher. So tell us more about Connie Stevens. Who was she? Why was she important? Uh, what what do we need to know about her? Connie Stevens, uh, in her early 20s, became part of the Warner Brothers stable. Warner Brothers, in the, in the late 50s, began a big push into TV. And what they did, they signed a lot of very young actors to try and groom them, first in their TV series, and if they somehow caught fire, put them in feature films. So Connie Stevens was one of these people. Um, she was really, her first big break was uh, Jerry Lewis uh, saw her in a TV show and, and put her in one of his first solo movies, post-Dean Martin. Well, was it one of those movies where he does that well, voice? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And Did he do movies where he didn't do that voice? Uh, very few. Very uh, few. <laughs> <laughs> then she got her big break on TV as... Warner Brothers and ABC made a very determined push into the emerging youth market 
the teenage market. Uh, ABC was, was distant third place. They really couldn't compete. So they filled their schedule with Westerns, with very young cowboy types. And they really tried to come up with youth-oriented characters in uh, dramas. She became a breakout star on a show called Hawaiian Eye, uh, also uh -huh. starring Robert Conrad, who we later uh, saw in Wild Wild West. Um, this kind of turned her into a big TV star. She played like a secretary in this detective agency set in Hawaii. Um, they did a lot of cross promotion. And one of the interesting things about her, at the same time, she started a, a recording career. And one of her biggest hits was a song about another character in another ABC show, 77 Sunset Strip, Ed Cookie Burns. She recorded a song about him called Cookie Cookie, Lend Me Your Comb. Uh, Ed Burns, <laughs> guy. Catchy. Yeah, he, it, it was a novelty song, but it really became a huge hit. He was sort of like the first real Lend example. me your comb, like comb your hair. Comb your hair, because he, he was always taking out his comb. He had long, wavy hair for the time, and he was all, he was like the, the chick magnet. He was always, he was the parking lot attendant. And he was always combing his hair. And he uh -huh. sort of became what we saw a lot of later in the 70s with like Christopher Lloyd in Taxi, uh, Henry Winkler in Happy Days, um, Kramer in Seinfeld, sort of the minor character who becomes the breakout character right. for the public. Yeah. They, they love the guy. So Ed Kuki Burns became this breakout character so she recorded a song and became a big hit. Um, now, curiously, um, you might know Ed Cookie Burns more from the movie Grease. He plays the Dick Clark type host of that American Bandstand show in the gym when they have the big dance-off contest on national TV. That's him. Okay. So, so Connie Stevens, so she's big on TV, big in recording. And this is sort of... A high point, she ended up in the early 60s starring in a series of uh, kind of youth-oriented features starring Troy Donahue, uh, like Palm Springs Weekend, uh, a movie called Parish. And her TV career was sort of sputtering out. She did a very brief uh, sitcom uh, with George Burns uh, mm -hmm. after his uh, wife, Gracie, died and she had retired and then died. So George Burns was kind of starting out on his own. The show right. didn't last long. And Connie Stevens basically became a big Vegas entertainer. Much she like heard. last week's uh, host. Yeah, I, I think even more, even more successful. I think Connie Stevens really carved out a long lasting nightclub career. I She's still living, by the way. Yeah. She's still alive, yeah. Yeah, still. So... By the time we see her in the Muppets, I have a feeling a lot of kids probably didn't really know who she was, younger people, uh, because by then she was really a Vegas entertainer. She wasn't appearing that much on the variety shows at the time. I think that sort of petered out more in the 60s. Hmm. So she has a lot of, um, as we mentioned in last week's show, as as amazing as the guest star list for the Muppet show is they got off to a slow, a little bit of a slow start. 
and you can draw a lot of parallels between Juliet Prowse last week and Connie Stevens this week, both sort of sort of on the downward side of their careers at this point. Although, as we said, Connie Stevens is still living and still was working till relatively recently. I think you told me she directed a film in 2008. Film in 2008, starring her daughter, Jolie Fisher. Uh, yeah, right. Um, and of course, she married Eddie Fisher. Well, we're, yeah, that's yeah, that's really another source of her lasting fame. Um, to give you an example of what Connie Stevens and what the Juliet Prowse last week, I'm, I'm actually going to go back to my my old in laws once more. <laughs> my my father in law had a perfect phrase, uh, an expression that described the Connie Stevens of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, these Hollywood types who you just, you always saw them, they always kept working, and you see here on The Muppet Show, and you're going, okay, why are we seeing, I mean, you know, there's, and he came up with this expression, which really defines so much of show business. He would say of Connie Stevens, she can't sing, she can't dance, she can't act, but she can't quit. Because she's a star. Right. And it, it, basically, they're people, they're famous for being famous. Yeah, which we're all familiar with now. Right. Although- but, you know, this is a really a perfect example because you, you watch Connie Stevens on The Muppet Show and you're not exactly blown away by some, you know, great talent. No, but she had a, I mean, you wouldn't compare it to like, a, when you say what you said there about she was famous for being famous, I think people listening now are going to think of like the Kardashians. Well, yeah. She there had was more, more to her than that. I mean, she had done something. She had some she's a far bigger. Yeah, she was a very bubbly, perky, kind of right. girl next door kind of an appeal. But yeah. her career and name and fame lasted far longer than I think that she merited. And one of the reasons is the connection, as we both uh, referred to Eddie Fisher. who right. Father uh, of Princess Leia, Carrie Prince Fisher. Carrie Fisher. By a different marriage. Eddie Fisher. Uh, uh, he married Connie Stevens in 1967 after he, uh, he was a huge name. He yeah. was a huge singing star in the 50s. Right. He um Famously married Debbie Reynolds sort of early on, and they were America's sweethearts. They became best friends with Elizabeth Taylor and her producer husband, Mike Todd, who won an Oscar for Around the World in 80 Days. And he died in this terrible plane crash. Eddie goes to console Liz. And next thing you know, he's run off with her, leaving, you know, America's sweetheart, Debbie Reynolds, in the lurch. And then a few years later, poor... Schnook Eddie gets dumped in the whole Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton scandal. So, right. so, but Eddie, Eddie Fisher was a huge singing star in the fifties. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there actually, there's a one, one thing I think you'll find interesting. And then I have a, a little story, which I think might, you'll find amusing. Um, Eddie Fisher had several number one hits but one song he had in 1954, which went to apparently number five on the charts, is a song from one of your favorite movies of all time. Uh, 1954. 
I don't know which movie. White Christmas. White Christmas. Irving yeah. Berlin's 1954. Andy's favorite movie. He did okay. a recording of Count Your Blessings. Ah, yes. Okay. Which went to number five on the charts. Which Bing Derbingle does in uh, White Christmas with the Rosemary Clooney. Rosemary Clooney. Yeah. So now I, I want to tell uh, this. This kind of illustrates to me. Uh, I, I, I heard and read this story years ago about Eddie Fisher, and it always stuck with me. Um, apparently in the very, very early days of TV, when most of it was live, maybe like 1949-50, Eddie Fisher was, you know, just starting to make his mark in nightclubs, and um, there was a, a live TV show with a very distinguished roster called something like This Is Show Business, where the idea was that these great show business veterans would help young guys and, 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 and women who came on the show trying to get a toehold and they would help them with their careers, give them advice. You can do this, try this. So um, very, uh, the, the, the narrator was a very distinguished New York Times guy. And in this particular uh, show, George S. Kaufman, the famous playwright, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, was on the panel. And apparently Eddie Fisher comes on and he tells the story about that is he's he's opening act at the Copacabana. And his problem is he's he's kind of young and very baby faced. And the chorus girls at the Copa just New York. ignore this him. Is in New York. Yeah, they don't they don't take him seriously. He wants right. to go out with them. He wants to and and, and they just make fun of him and, and they tell him to grow up and come around in 10 years. And I'm not getting anywhere with these girls. What do I do? Mm -hmm. so, so apparently, while he's telling this story, the camera is, is panning to George Kaufman, basically holding his head in his hands in pure agony. Like, oh my God, seriously? I am I'm actually, my life is sunk to this point. I have to listen to this. So the, <laughs> the narrator beautifully goes, well, that's a very interesting problem, Eddie. Um, I think Mr. Kaufman can help you out on that. <laughs> apparently George Kaufman did this he he takes a pause and he goes you know I read the other day that the famous uh, observatory near San Diego Mount Palomar just built the world's largest telescope okay. there's dead silence like people are turning to stone what the hell is he talking about from what I understand the magnification on this telescope is at least a hundred times greater than any telescope we've ever seen. Scientists are thrilled at the opportunity to peer far into our galaxy and the idea that the discoveries that will result from this, could, this could be one of the most momentous scientific uh, inventions of the 20th century. And he pauses. Now everyone is, you know, what is this? What, this is ridiculous. Then Kaufman goes, you would have to take this Mount Palomar telescope and use it to discover the extent of my interest in any fishing <laughs> problem. <laughs> Live TV in like 1950. <laughs> Very good. So, you know, so Eddie Fisher, this huge name, it was like, trust me, between you know, the Elizabeth Taylor thing, and then the Richard Burton, Eddie Fisher was in the middle of like the biggest scandals mm. 
of, of, of the century. Right. And by the time he married Connie Stevens in 67, he's very passe. He's not really doing too well. He had a lot of problems. They only were married two short years. Hmm. Uh, so uh, he, he lived several decades more, but you know his star had certainly dimmed. But he was a much bigger name than Connie Stevens, certainly. Yeah. Um, another connection you can make between uh, our last, last week's uh, guest star, Juliet Prowse, and this week's um, Connie Stevens is that if you, we, we mentioned that um, you thought that Juliet Prowse looked sort of out of time in, the, in 1976. Uh, she yeah. was a little too made up. It wasn't really, her aesthetic was not the aesthetic of, of female performers in the mid 1970s. Well, if right. you think that was bad, uh, Connie Stevens shows up in a poodle skirt. I mean, she is all in on the girl, you know, uh, head cheerleader, quarterback's girlfriend kind of look yeah. uh, and would have looked, I think, even you tell me, even more out of place in 1976, except that this was something that was happening in the culture at the time. A, a longing, a, a desire to forget yeah. the 60s entirely and just think about the 50s. And, well, and that's just if, interestingly enough, in the early 70s, again, as part of the thing we started to go into last, last time about trying to get as far away from the 60s and the turmoil as possible, there was a huge nostalgia craze in or starting around 1973 for the 50s. It's music. It's, you know, it's more innocent time. It was a better time. It was that sort of a thing. Uh, there were two developments, I think, that really led to that. There was a, a documentary that was very popular in the theaters called Let the Good Times Roll, which basically showed an oldies, it was, a, it was a film of a concert that guys like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino were performing in front of a live, very enthusiastic audience. And all of a sudden, in New York, in particular, like WCBS FM went to an all oldies format, just 50s music, 24 hours a day. And at the same time, I think helping this craze along, uh, George Lucas's American Graffiti opened up, which certainly echoed in terms of the, the soundtrack of that movie, you know, with Wolf, Wolfman Jack, the famous DJ playing songs from the 50s. That also led. So the 70s, there was this real 50s revival going on and it lasted for years. And happy then, days, and then to after, be happy days. Graffiti led directly to happy days and Laverne and Shirley coming on the air. Yeah. Um, so we, we've spoken before about so, some of these people, some of these guest hosts are huge names that we could spend entire shows talking about, some not so much. Uh, maybe you can briefly mention what you discovered about Connie Stevens post Muppet show. She is still alive. Uh, I don't know if she performs, but she has a website. Um, it, you, I, I thought briefly about contacting her agent, but she has an agent. She has a, you know, she seems to be still out there. Um, yeah. what, what has she she's been doing? Apparently she's very prominent in Republican politics. Oh, she great. was a very okay. prominent and enthusiastic John McCain supporter okay. in, in both okay. his presidential runs. Okay. 
Um, what else has she been up to since 1970? She directed this feature I never heard of, I think in 2008, starring her, her actress daughter, Jolie Fisher, mm -hmm. Carrie Fisher's uh, half-sister. Um, there was an interesting quote I found from like the late 80s where she was sort of lamenting the course of her career. And she said something to the effect of, I'm still waiting to do my uh, my movie with Marlon Brando. I really think I'm ready for that, but I'm I've never been given that opportunity. Right. And you know, so and there it, was a bitterness. And oddly, like maybe she was and Marlon bitter. Brando wasn't exactly right. <laughs> on the uh, household uh, A-list Hollywood guy in practical terms. He was still Marlon Brando, and actually, he had just was about to do The Freshman, which is a very underrated comedy with Matthew Broderick. But, yeah. you know, she she had these delusions about herself, which maybe, you know, have lasted all these years. But right. I think she probably still performed in Vegas, probably into the 2000s, maybe places like Branson, wouldn't surprise right. me. Sure. One of, all those theaters there. Mm -hmm. um, I think she also did some theater like regional theater, you know, reviving old musicals um, on the road. She right. did that sort of thing as well. In this show, she does a couple of musical numbers. We'll move on now to talking about the yeah. show itself. Um, <clears throat> it was a very musical episode. Very. Um, there were, I count, really four musical numbers, um, two of which involve Stevens. Uh, she sings teenager in love one of the most famous songs right. from the and 1950s these, and, and, and uh what, what are they called the mutations the mutations she's got the, there, there's these four that, muppets that are sort of monsters and they're called instead of the temptations the mutations right and then she does a, a thing which we'll talk about very straight she does it in full the whole number and yeah. you know it's a very famous 50s number so yes she also does a, a bit with um the other they are sort of mentioned at the beginning of the show, almost like they're co-guest stars that yeah. Ernie and Bert appear uh, from Sesame Street appear in this episode. And she does a, 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 a skit with Bert. But the first musical number involves Kermit singing a, a song that I had never heard of, but is associated with Groucho Marx called Lydia, the Tattooed Lady. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it, Groucho is one of his most famous songs. It was done in the Marx Brothers movie uh, at the circus. I think from 1938, uh, if any of you have seen Philadelphia Story, uh, the young girl who plays Catherine Hepburn's sister uh, does a full version of it to a kind of horrified Jimmy Stewart uh, in, in the movie. And Groucho did it numerous times over the years. It was one of his most popular musical numbers that he ever did. I so, found a video on YouTube yeah, of him YouTube, doing it on... Um... Is it from the movie or? No, from it's the from show? the guy that you used to used to come to your coffee shop. Uh, uh, the oh, Dick, show, Cavett. Dick Cavett. Yeah. On the Dick oh. Cavett show. Yeah. You should check so that it, out. It's a it's a wonderful song. It's a very clever song. And it was one of uh, Groucho's signature uh, numbers. It's about did. in this case, it's uh, it involves a pig, not Miss Piggy, who is covered in tattoos and they're. The idea, I guess, is you can learn a lot from Lydia because she's covered in tattoos about different uh, moments in history. There are some great lines. On um, the back is the where, Battle of Waterloo. The, yes. And the wreck of the Hesperus too. When her yeah. muscles start relaxing, 
up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. You can uh, learn a lot from Lydia. From Lydia. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is also a, a skit where at the end, um, Kermit comes off stage with Lydia and runs into Miss Piggy, who we see here her first incidents. She, of course, becomes known later in the show for her temper and her specifically for her physical violence. I mean, she's, you know, the whole hi yeah, you know, she, she her, karate chops people. Yeah. In this case, he Kermit says, have you met Lydia? And she says, no, have you met my right fist? And she punches him in the face. So again, we get the indication here that Kermit and Miss Piggy are in some sort of uh, relationship. Um, but I, there was a, it was it's, there was the first number in the show, and I thought it was um, a lot of fun. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I, I mean, Kermit did the whole Lydia number. It wasn't just a little snippet. He did it. Right. No, they did the whole thing. Yeah, it was great. Uh, then uh, Stevens does Teenager in Love with the Mutations. Then we get uh, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, the, the Muppet Show house band, do a, a really great rendition of Eight Misbehaving. Wasn't that great? I yeah. love that. Yeah. That, um, I believe. And again, so, in full, they did the whole number. The, the show, the Muppet Show aired both in the UK and in the United States, but in the UK, the show was two minutes longer. So on these Disney Plus shows that you see, there's usually a segment. Last week, it was Rolf singing that uh, song. I forget what it was that about. Bizarre, nobody, yeah, that bizarre song, song that nobody listens to. made up to. on the spot. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, it, it was, this, I think was that it was the UK segment, the extra bit of content that filled the extra. Well, because as, as we know from our television careers, Andy, you know, how you format a show and in, in Britain, they had uh, less commercial time they had to worry about. Right. So they had add content. And the last uh, musical number involves Ernie and Bert. Um, and it's, a, 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 they do some enchanted evening. Uh, with, from South um, Pacific. Some, south pacific and connie stevens is involved with that basically uh, almost like a juliet prouse bert is singing to her as she descends a staircase she doesn't sing she's not really dancing no, she she's just sort yeah. of stylized walking down the stairs trying to look seductive as yeah. bert you know croons his heart out yeah and so what we were one of the things we wanted to talk about here was that in the first two episodes there's a real i don't want to call it there's this sort of um, parody of, of sexual tension between usually, and it happens in this episode too, in the, in the segment, the recurring segment where, where Kermit interviews the, the guest star, but it also happens in the, in the Burt segment with Connie Stevens. It's this parody of like sexual tension between the Muppets and the guest star. They're always sort of flirting with each other constantly and touching she the, the guest host is always touching the puppets and the puppets are you know they're 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 very titillated by this I, but what did you make of that um and you well, you said you felt like it, it it was parodying something that happened it was on very Friday familiar shows. to me growing up in the, in in the 60s watching so much variety television where the the famous like, let's say you're watching Dean Martin in the 60s and whatever female guest star they had, and, you, and if it was a singer, especially, let's say Alina Horn or a Rosemary Clooney or whoever, they would do a number in two and they would basically, their arms all over each other or he'd have his arms around her and it'd be so very 
flirty and charming, like, you know, these two people are crazy about each other as they sing to each other. So you're really believing the love song they're singing is really true. So it was a, it was a real convention of the variety show to demonstrate that the host and the guest stars were best friends and or possible lovers, you know, that this was, we were just sort of eavesdropping. This is how they would behave if the cameras weren't there. They would sing right. and do this in the exact same manner. So I think that's what Henson, they're trying to, you know, this was a, a show business television convention of the 60s that they were echoing. Right. And like we said, it happens both in the Bert, Connie Stevens segment where they do, uh, where they do their bit and also it well, happened in with Prouse, with Kermit, and with Kermit and Connie Stevens. I'm, I'm curious that. when we see, start seeing like hunky male guest stars, will that will that be Miss Piggy doing that or some other? You know, I bet you that we're going to see a lot of that too. Well, we have our first a uh, male host next week, uh, Joel Gray. I don't know how interested he would be in Miss Piggy, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so moving on. Uh, I think we'll save Gonzo for next episode. I really want to talk about Gonzo because he's in this one as well. Last week he was eating a tire while Flight of the Bumblebee um, played. Ne this week he was growing a tomato plant while playing the 1812 Overture uh, <laughs> on a violin. He's booed off stage really before he even gets started. I think Gonzo is a really interesting character. He is the only, the only, really the only character to my thinking in the Muppet show who is a real character in the show. In other words, who has a significant role, who has lines and is not recognizable in, in terms of his form. He's not neither human nor animal. He is some, I think what, Henson himself may have called, or people that are interested in the Muppets call a whatever character. You're not really sure exactly what he's supposed well, to be. And there are other characters like that. To like uh, Goofy in Disney. You know, a famously, little bit. Goofy's a dog. Though, isn't they have the, the kids have the discussion, what the hell is Goofy? Is he a horse? Is he a dog? You, you don't really know. I thought, he was, I thought he was a dog. He's not a, a lot dog. of people think he was a horse. Okay, I'll have to look so, at that. But the point is, Gonzo has that kind of, what the hell is that quality? Yeah. yeah, and he seems sort of outside of somehow of even the Muppets, not sure of himself, not sure where he belongs, seeking approval. Uh, I think later in the show, he, he ends up falling in love with a chicken, right? He's always surrounding himself yeah. with chickens. There's a poignant um, aspect to him. Yes, yeah. and he he's, has this sort of evil Knievel aspect to him where he's, putting his body on the line to entertain people and to gain approval. Well, he, he's but, basically so, a show business striving kind of a guy. He's trying to find his niche on the right. show. He's desperate. Right. He'll do anything. Yes. He doesn't yeah. have a role. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so that's, I think maybe we'll save that because that's going to be an ongoing thing in the show. Uh, we have see for the first time in this episode, one of my favorites, and I think one of most people's favorite characters in the Muppet show is the Swedish chef. Now, this is a this is a situation where I think what's going to happen as we go along in this is you're going to have to keep me honest because my desire for this to be a intelligent um, discussion of the Muppets on some higher level is going to lead me on occasion to shoehorn uh, things in where they don't belong. Right. Um, 
And the Swedish chef is one of those uh, instances. We were having a discussion, a text message discussion about this. And I was trying to convince you that he represented some larger uh, interest in the culture of the sort of, of Swedish culture, Swedish aesthetics. Um, I was thinking of Bjorn Borg, the tennis player. And I will say that, that this first skit, um, it does involve tennis. Right. So and, and, maybe and, I'm and right. And, and to be fair, this is, do we, this was a, a 77 episode or early in, or 76. Do we know? It would have, it would have been taped in 76. Okay. Yeah. But by then Borg had won his first Wimbledon uh, in July of 76. He was already a very famous and particularly in London, he was becoming immortal. So it, it depends if in, he, he might have even into the second year. So there, there's an aspect. I'll give you the Swedish tennis connection. Right. And I was I was pushing this idea that um, Henson was, though not uh, explicitly political most of the time, he was anti-war and Sweden, um, the Swedish government was one of the most outspoken critics of the Vietnam War. Yes. And there was there was a period of very cool relations between the United States and Sweden in the 1960s. Well, it was it was very prevalent back in the 60s when talking about you know draft resistance. What do you do? You go you to know, Sweden. Yeah. Probably you, you go to jail. What what do you do? Uh, most American kids who did resist went to Canada, but it was a very popular. Sweden was a very popular called for destination. I remember right. as a kid hearing that if not Canada, well, you go to Sweden, that's where you go. Right. So uh, because their government was so uh, anti-war. Or anti-war. Yeah. Plus, and I, I think and Sweden I, was considered in the late 60s a very cool place to go. So. Right. And, and I think you know better than I that, and this is reflected in what we talked about earlier with this uh, interest, nostalgia for the 1950s there was really a, a consensus is the word you used in, in the culture that we just don't want to, we want to put, forget about the sixties. We don't want to yeah. think about it anymore. So it maybe wouldn't even have been something he would have wanted to do. It was just that the, the desire was to just not think about that anymore. Well, let's put it this way. If, if, if you're correct, it. if you're sensing some, even a subliminal anti-war sort of message that, I think it would have gone so far over that audience's head. I, it, it wouldn't have connected that way. Right. You know, yeah. if that was his intent. So in I mean, the end. To me, to me, I think it was, um, remember I grew up in the sixties on PBS or the forerunner of CBS, you know, Julia Child, the, the, the advent of the cooking shows. And then in the early, late 60s, early 70s, there was a daytime show, which was hugely popular, which my mother adored. A guy called Graham Kerr from Australia called The Galloping Gourmet, where essentially every show he got sloshed, drinking wine, <laughs> doing these. And my, as my mother always said, they were ridiculous recipes, but who cared? He was right. funny as hell and he was drinking on air and yeah. he was charming the housewives. So all of a sudden you were starting to see the advent of the cooking show on TV. So I have a feeling the Swedish chef there's kind of trying to jump into that. I, I think that's what we're seeing. 
Right. And, and you maybe, had other. And maybe in Britain, maybe on BBC at that point, I don't know. There were already some chef shows. In yeah, Britain. I don't. I'm not as familiar, but there's a very famous woman named Delia Smith, uh, who was a famous a sort yeah. of a celebrity chef who probably would have been roughly back to the early 70s, mid 70s. You know? Yeah, I don't know. But I think everybody I have a feeling it's it's more what Henson had in mind. Uh, you, you, where you're going, to, you know, academically, you could write a great paper about it. And I'll bet you you could cite references and it'd be a hell of a paper. Oh, I don't I don't need references because I can quote Swedish chef directly. And I think this is oh, a really oh, poignant oh, quote. That's all you need. Yeah. Burgers vi ho, hedi hu, gedesi du, yaberkes beer, horngere ster um, mork, mork, mork. I think that says it all, Doug, don't you? I, I, I couldn't possibly follow that, no. Uh, it's time for LOL times when we laughed out loud in this episode do you want to go first um truthfully um th th this show really started cement my my long-held suspicion that my favorite thing in this whole series is going to be statler and waldorf because i think See, i think they're a little off their game early i, I, I don't I think, think they're they as funny more pointed in this one, they were making some kind of lewd Connie Stevens observations. I, I can see where they're going. I, I can see where they're heading. I, uh, to me, it was recognizably them. And yeah, I, I, I definitely laughed several times out loud. With I did laugh at there. Of course, if you, if you, it's important when watching the Muppet show to not go away when the credits roll, because they always come back to Statler and Waldorf at the end. And in this one, they come back to them at the end and Stadler and Waldorf say, uh, do you think this show is educational? And the other one says, yes, we'll drive yeah, people to read books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that they, they are funny, but I, I, I feel like they're, they're, you know, they're developing their, their, their game and they're not quite what they will be, but I'm looking forward to seeing that develop. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, this episode to me was so musical. There were very, there weren't as many, I mean, Bert and Ernie, their, their banter wasn't particularly funny. I, I just, I, to me, Statler and Waldorf was really the comedy in the show, I yeah. thought. Uh, my LOL was um, a, a very short clip of a, a character that doesn't get a lot of publicity, but that I really like is when they do a Muppet news flash. And it's sort of, it's a character in a, a news studio, uh, kind of a, uh, you know, a Walter Cronkite or, or Dan Rather or something like that. And uh, in this one, he comes in and he says, we have a call on the Muppet Newsflash hotline. And then he picks yes. up the phone and he then he drops it and says, ow, 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 because it's a hotline. That made me laugh. You're right. I like that too. Yes. Uh, so at the end of every episode, as I mentioned earlier, we end by previewing next week's guest with a five-word essay based on Stanford's five-word essay that you have to write to, uh, to get in during, to apply to Stanford. Uh, next week's guest is Joel Gray. Uh, I'll do mine first, Doug. Okay. Uh, my Joel Gray five-word essay is, he came out at 83. What's yours? Mine is Dirty Dancing. What about cabaret? Something to look forward to. Next week, Joel Gray.